0: All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the letter of 1 Corinthians. In this recording, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. In our previous first recording on 1 Corinthians, we looked at the backstory to help us understand the city of Corinth, the the problems that were plaguing the Corinthian church and what led to this letter being written. And if you haven't listened to that, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to that so that you understand some of the setting and situation and original context for this letter. In this section, verses 1 through 9 of chapter 1, what we get is the introduction and the greeting and the opening thanksgiving to uh, the letter of 1 Corinthians. It follows the standard format of ancient Greco-Roman letters, though modified slightly for uh, the sake of the distinctive things of the gospel and Jesus and the apostolic work. And so we begin 1 Corinthians with an introduction and greeting, and it reads like this. Paul Called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling with all in every place who call on the name of our Lord Jesus, their Lord and ours Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, this is a standard way letters would begin in the Greco Roman world of the first century, uh, although it's been obviously adapted and modified and sort of like baptized into Christ for the sake of the distinctiveness of the work of Christ. And so, the letters began in the first century world with uh, a reference to the sender and then the recipient, and then the greetings. So in this case, verse 1 tells us who the senders are. Paul called us an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. And so Paul is the author and sender of this letter. Notice he describes himself as an apostle. The word apostle means one sent, usually one sent as an official representative of somebody, an ambassador, a representative sent representing that person with their authority and their purpose. And so Paul is an apostle. Of whom? Well, of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus the Messiah. So he is an ambassador and a representative of King Jesus the Messiah. The word Messiah is not a name, it's a title. It means the anointed one. And so Jesus is the one anointed as Christ or in Hebrew as Messiah. And Paul has this this role as an apostle by God's will. It's God's desire, God's plan. Along with Paul, who is sending this letter, is also someone named Sosthenes, and Paul describes him as our brother. Now, this is interesting. We can't maybe 100% prove this, but this seems highly likely that this is the same Sosthenes mentioned in Acts chapter 18. Acts 18 tells the story of the founding of the church in Corinth, and Paul had led the initial synagogue leader, a man by the name of Crispus, to Christ and baptized him. And so they had to find a new synagogue leader, apparently, and they found a man by the name of Sosthenes. And the Jews, when they brought Paul before the judgment seat of Gallio there in Corinth, uh, they entrusted the case to their leader, Sosthenes. And so look what Acts chapter 18, verse uh, 17 says, when the case gets tossed out of court and uh, Galileo dismisses it, they all took hold of Sosthenes, that is all the Jews, took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. Now, we don't know 100% for certain whether this Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.1 and the guy mentioned in Acts 18.17 is the same Sosthenes, but it seems likely, particularly in view of the fact that he's from Corinth and he's well known to the church. And perhaps it's possible that maybe the Jews there in that moment of that trial felt like Sosthenes was a little soft on Paul, didn't present their case very well. Maybe that's why they beat him. Maybe Sosthenes was sympathetic to Paul. And then after this beating, he, uh, he said, no, nah, I'm done with this. And he began to follow Christ through Paul's ministry. Don't know for sure. But it seems highly likely so the senders of this letter are paul and sosthenes the recipients uh, is notice it says to the church of god which is in corinth and so that's the initial statement of who the recipients are so it's the church and remember that the word ecclesia church in the New Testament, it doesn't refer to a building or a place or some sort of religious organization. The word ekklesia refers to a gathering of people. The basic meaning of the word is assembly. It's an assembly of people, a gathered group of people. And Paul specifies that this ecclesia, this gathering is the church of God. And so that distinguishes it from other ecclesias, other gatherings of people, other bodies in the city, like the political body was regularly called an ecclesia, right? And well, this is the ecclesia of God, the church of God. And it specifies the location, which is in the city of Corinth. Talked about Corinth in the last recording. So if you want to know more about the city of Corinth, you should listen to that recording. But Corinth is a major and important and large city in the Greco-Roman world. And so this is the ecclesia, the gathering of people uh, under God in the city of Corinth. And then he gets even more specific in the second half of verse two. He says, "To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. So it's not just those in Corinth and those in God, because theoretically, that could even refer to Jews in the synagogue. They're a gathering a people who believe in God, right? And so it's not just, Um, that gathering of people, but it's to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, this narrows it down. Now we know which specific gathering of people we're talking about, those who belong to Jesus. And the word sanctified is from the same root as the word holy, And even the word translated saint here a little bit later in the verse. And so they are sanctified. That is, they are set apart as holy in Jesus. They are consecrated and dedicated as God's people in Messiah Jesus. That's the idea of sanctified. And thus, because they've been set apart for God and for his purposes as his holy people, they are called saints. And that word saint is holy. Literally, holy ones. And so, sanctified from the root word for holy. The word saint is from the root word for holy. They have been set apart as holy, and thus they are called the holy ones. They are saints. That's their status. That's their calling. And that's their vocation to be God's holy people there in the city of Corinth, serving Messiah Jesus. Now, what's interesting here in uh, 1 Corinthians is... And this is not just interesting, it's also important. It's not just, the recipients are not just the church of, of God in Christ in Corinth. It's also, notice, with all who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... Their Lord and ours. So even though Paul is going to address the issues and the problems affecting the Corinthian congregation, he believes what he has to say is useful for churches and Christians everywhere. And so he says this is also for. Uh, all who in every place call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. And so this may explain why Paul says what he does in chapter 11, verse 34, when he says, when I come, I'll give you further instructions about some other matters. Uh, It's, possible that Paul is kind of picking and choosing what he feels like are the things to address and the things to say that not only address the Corinthian issues, but it's beneficial to the church at large. So this is a very specific letter dealing with the problems that are plaguing the Corinthian church, but Paul also te- intends what he says to be valuable to the church at large, and so in this sense, it has a broader audience than just Corinth. So we have the sender, Paul and Sosthenes, the recipients, the Christians in Corinth and Christians everywhere, and then the greetings in verse 3, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, The standard greeting in a letter in the first century was greetings. At this point in the letter, you would get from so-and-so to such-and-such greetings, and the the word typically used for greetings is the Greek word chirine. Now, listen to the word for grace. It's charis, Chirine, charis. They sound very similar. So it seems like what the early Christians did was they took the standard greeting Chirine, baptized it into Christ, and thus modified it to charis, grace. And since grace is at the heart and is central to God's character and how God has treated us in Christ, it made perfect sense to do that. And so you take the standard Greek greeting and adjust it and adapt it to become grace to you. The standard Hebrew or Jewish greeting in the first century was shalom, which means peace. And so now you get peace. So grace to you and peace. And so you've taken the standard Greek greeting and modified it, the standard Jewish greeting, added it here. And all of this speaks of of both what God has done for us in Christ, the benefits of that is shalom and harmony and peace with God and peace with each other, a new family of God in Christ, all represented in a simple little greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ put together as one source for grace and peace to us. So that's the introduction and the greetings. Now, after the letter opening, Paul follows His typical pattern and really uh, part of the typical pattern, again, of letters of his day where after the opening greetings, there was some sort of prayer, some sort of wish for health or something like that. Again, the early Christians took that and turned that into a prayer report of how they were praying for the Christians that they're writing to. And so Paul typically does that in all his letters. The only letter he doesn't do that in is the letter to the Galatians. But even here, for the Corinthians, with all the problems they have and all the grief they've already caused Paul, and they're going to continue to cause Paul, even here, Paul still thanks God for them. Although, what he writes when he thanks God for them is really more thanking God for God's work and not really for the Corinthians themselves. Paul is thankful that God has worked in and among them and brought them to himself, even though they're struggling to figure out what that means and how to live that out. And so, he writes... Verse four, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which, is, which was given you in Christ Jesus. Paul is thankful for God's grace that was given to them in Christ, which essentially means that God gave them his grace so that they could become members of Christ's family, Christ's people. That's what he's thanking God for. I'm so grateful, in other words, that God poured out his grace on you And that you could experience that in Jesus and are now part of the people of God in Christ. Paul then goes on and develops that further in verse 5 and says that, now he specifies a little further. Here's one of the ways he sees God's grace in Jesus being expressed and poured out in and among them. That, in everything, you were enriched in him. Riches. As we talked about in the uh, opening recording, riches were a key part of honor and status uh, in the city of Corinth. Like the more uh, wealth you had, the more honor you would have and the more status thus you would have. And so riches were important. And so Paul wants them to know that whatever their background, they have been made rich. That's literally what this word enriched means is they have been made rich, um, not with worldly wealth, but They've been made rich in him, that there is a kind of wealth available in Christ that goes beyond worldly wealth. And then he gets specific with two areas that they were enriched in, in all speech and all knowledge. This is important, and it really hints at... Um, some of the things Paul is going to address here in 1 Corinthians and some of the things that he'll talk about in 2 Corinthians. And the reason for that is because this was a huge cultural value in the city of Corinth. In fact, uh, every other year, Corinth hosted what was kind of an athletic and uh, gaming competition, the Isthmian Games, that was second in prestige only to the Olympics. And they hosted that in the city of Corinth. And as a part of that competition, they actually had oratory competitions, rhetoric competitions, public speaking competitions. This is how big of a, a value oratory and rhetoric speech and knowledge was in the city of Corinth. Well, between First Corinthians and Second Corinthians, it becomes quite clear that the Corinthians valued those Uh, The Corinthians who valued oratory and rhetoric and all of that, so that um, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul's lack of professional oratory becomes a cause for some doubting him and his ministry. That's how big of a deal this is. So Paul here is thanking God that in his grace, he made them rich in speech and in knowledge. It's a big deal to them. Now, he thanks God for that, uh, but what he doesn't say here, but will address later, is that they've been made rich with that, and they're misusing it, <laughs> they're misusing this blessing of God for their own self-serving purposes, and so they got to get this figured out and get this right and have it arranged under God's purposes and the love of Christ, not use it to make themselves look good. But here, at least, he thanks God that they have been made rich in knowledge and in speech. He goes on, continues to describe the work of God in his grace among them in verse six by saying, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. The testimony concerning Christ is the message of the gospel, the, the witness about Jesus. And that testimony, the, the message of the gospel was confirmed in them through God's grace through uh, God making them rich in speech and knowledge. And so the idea is that God enriching the Corinthians confirmed um, the the message about Jesus and his grace among them. And the result, according to verse 7, is that not just that they were made rich in speech and knowledge, but that they're lacking in no spiritual gift. Look at verse 7. "...so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ." And so God has made them rich in speech and knowledge and they're not lacking in any gift. And the word for gift is charisma in Greek. It's from the word grace. It's a grace gift. Any gift of grace. And Paul uses this word throughout his letters for the various gifts of salvation. For example, Romans 5, 15, and 16, he talks about uh, the gifts of justification and salvation and life. Uh, Romans 6:23, he talks about the gift of eternal life. And so it is a word that can refer to various gifts of salvation, and it probably has that general sense even here, God making them rich through his grace in Christ Jesus, but... In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 12 through 14, that we'll get to later in this commentary, Paul uses the word for specific gifts of the Spirit. speaking in tongues and prophecy and miracles and that sorts of things. And he actually there provides correction for the ways they're misusing the gifts. And so though the reference is probably broad to grace gifts in general here, it anticipates the focused discussion on spiritual gifts that's to come in chapters 12 through 14. So what we see Paul doing here in this um, this opening prayer is hinting at some of the things that he's going to address and talk about later on in the letter. And he's thanking God for them because they're legitimate and good gifts of God's grace to them. The problem is is that the Corinthians are misusing those gifts because they're still shaped by the honor and shame culture of their world, and they're still trying to seek status and honor. And now they're doing it using God's blessings and gifts to that end. And Paul will go on to say, no, we that's not the way it works in Christ. We're actually marked by the cross. And so he's going to go on and try to correct some of the ways they're misusing the grace gifts of God. But nevertheless, he's still thanking God for them here because they're still legitimate and good gifts that come along with what God has done for his people in Christ. And notice here that he he says to them in verse 7 that they're not lacking any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which describes really the basic posture or outlook of Christians that Christians are those who are eagerly awaiting the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ came once and he will come again. And so in between the first and second coming, the basic outlook and posture of those who follow Christ is we're looking forward in hope, waiting eagerly for the revelation, for the curtain to be pulled back and for Jesus to be disclosed and for him to return again. And so, with that end day in mind, Paul wants to encourage the Corinthians while expressing how he's thanking God for them, that it's God who's at work in them, and he'll make sure, if they'll they'll trust him, he'll make sure uh, to finish his work in them. And so, he says that as they, they wait eagerly for the revelation of Jesus Christ, he says in verse 8, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul is thanking God that God has given these grace gifts to him and that God himself will also confirm. That means to strengthen and establish you to the end. And that phrase, to the end, can mean one of two things. It can mean like to the final day, like to the day of the Lord Jesus, which obviously we're talking about here, or it could even mean completely, and it's actually not clear either one actually works in the context here. Maybe, um, maybe Paul has completely more in mind that he'll confirm you fully and completely, or maybe uh, he'll confirm you to the final day. Um, the idea probably is completely, particularly in view of the the next word being blameless, that he will complete. He will uh, confirm you completely, blameless like this. Like, as you walk with him and look to him and trust him, God is working among you and he will make you blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God can be trusted to confirm them to the end so that they will be found blameless when Jesus returns. And notice he refers to... uh, the, the return of Jesus as the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Fascinating because the phrase the day of the Lord is a frequent theme in the Old Testament, especially in the Old Testament prophets. And it refers to the day of God's deliverance and the day of God's judgment that God will Judge his enemies and the opponents of his people, and he will vindicate and deliver his people. And so there were little days of the Lord scattered throughout history, but they're all looking forward to the great final ultimate day of the Lord that Paul now sees as focused on Jesus. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament prophets is now the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the final ultimate day of the Lord is the day when Jesus the Messiah is revealed and returns. And so with that in mind, Paul ends his opening greetings and thanksgiving by saying, and God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How can Paul be so confident that God will confirm them and establish them? Well, because God is faithful. God can be trusted to complete his work in and among them. The very God who called them into fellowship with Jesus, into sharing with Jesus, into partnership with Jesus. That's the idea of fellowship. Fellowship means sharing in, partnership with. God called them into that, and God is faithful. And so to summarize, in this opening prayer, Paul thanks God for his work in and among the Corinthians through Jesus Christ. And In this letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul emphasizes that he wants to preach Christ and only Christ, and Christ crucified. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that in this opening section of the letter, he mentions Christ 10 times in nine verses. That's who Paul preaches, Christ. And since this prayer focuses on God's work, it's appropriate for us to ask, what do we learn about God here? And what we learn is that God is gracious, uh, that He he's the one who pours out his grace in us and among us, that it's his work by grace that makes everything possible. He's gracious, and he's generous in his spiritual blessings. He's enriched his people with spiritual blessings, and he's faithful. He can be counted on to finish the work that he started in and among the Corinthians and his people everywhere. And so God is dependable and is trustworthy and we can count on him. All right. Thanks for tuning into the listener's commentary on first Corinthians. The listener's commentary is a listener supported crowdfunded Bible teaching ministry made possible by the generosity of, of folks all around the world, folks just like you and just like me. And so if you've been blessed or impacted in some way by the listener's commentary, would you just pause maybe and even prayerfully just consider supporting this work and helping this work continue to grow and increase and expand so that more people can learn the scriptures, love the scriptures, and follow Jesus right where they live. Thanks a ton for your support.